Life is full of waiting, waiting for an answer, waiting for the appointment, waiting to grow up. I was reading to Nathaniel this week, and I saw how Dr. Seuss captures in rhyme the frustrations of this experience and all the places you'll go. Quote, everyone is just waiting. No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. I'm not sure whether I want to encourage such a negative view on waiting. As we study the Bible, it turns out waiting's not such a bad thing after all. Waiting for God's arrival and the fulfillment of his purposes is tantamount to trusting him. It's not passivity, resignation. It's not stoicism, inactivity. It's an exercise of faith to wait on the Lord. Now, we could use more guidance on this, though. Thankfully, before Jesus departed, he left instructions for us as we wait for the kingdom and his return. He wants our sights in the future, but he doesn't want us to lose sight of our duty in the present. In a word, we have work to do in our own waiting place. So let's turn to today's passage. Luke 21, 29 to 38. If you want to use your pew Bible, it's in page 738. Luke 21, 29 to 38. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Before we get to the sermon points, we'll set this passage in its context, and we'll divide it into portions. First, let's talk about the context, and let's zoom out for a moment. Today's passage concludes chapter 21, and it also concludes a section of Luke. In chapter 21, we're in the middle of an important talk by Jesus known as the Olivet Discourse. It stretches through two chapters of Matthew as one of Jesus' five major teaching blocks in the first gospel. Luke doesn't include all of the contents, but like Matthew and Mark, he does include the parable of the fig tree along with exhortations related to the end times. And then in verses 37 to 38, Luke's going to wrap up a section that began back in chapter 19. In chapter 19, verses 47 to 48, 
Luke narrates that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple and all the people were very attentive to hear him. Here again, chapter 21, 37 to 38, there's the mention of Jesus teaching in the temple and all the people hearing it. So the last verses of chapter 21 echo chapter 19, 47 to 48. Together they serve as sort of bookends of this section. Chapter 22 will begin a new section that culminates with the death of Jesus. Now let's zoom in to today's passage and divide it up. The most obvious divisions after verse 36. With it, we have the voice of Jesus, the teacher, in verses 29 to 36. And there's the voice of Luke, the narrator, in verses 37 to 38. Next, as we focus on Jesus' words, three commands draw our attention. First, in verse 31, there's that imperative, no. Knowing the end times is the focus of verses 29 to 33. The second command is in verse 34, take heed to yourselves. You'll find some principles here and in the next verse as it relates to our spiritual growth. Thirdly, there's the command in verse 36. Watch. Here the focus is more on prayer. With all that in mind, let's talk about how our church should be a waiting place. In a good way, of course. How do we look for and hasten the coming of the day of God? One, know God's word with firm conviction. Know God's word with firm conviction. That's verses 29 to 33. Two, guard your hearts with eager expectation. Guard your hearts with eager expectation. Verses 34 to 35. Three, Watch and pray in humble dedication. That's verse 36. Watch and pray in humble dedication. Verse 36. Finally, four, follow Christ in active devotion. Follow Christ in active devotion. That's verses 37 to 38. First, know God's word with firm conviction. Jesus begins today's passage with the parable. Parables can communicate supernatural truths through natural images. And this one's well-timed. Consider that Jesus has just painted a bleak vision of the future. It's harrowing and distressing, not to mention complicated, requiring deeper study. So it's entirely appropriate that Jesus follows with the simple, serene, arboreal word picture. It applies to the fig tree and all the trees on the verge of budding before the summer. Now, there are reminders of this truth earlier in the year as well. So I saw in the news this week that due to the unusually warm winter, the cherry blossoms in D.C. are set to bloom early this year. They know this because of a particular tree called an indicator tree. 
as its name suggests, it signals to us about seven to ten days ahead of others. It does not take a genius to figure this out. We feel the nice weather. We see the buds. We know the seasonal changes near. The same simple principle applies to the signs of Jesus' return, except it won't be pretty pink flower petals. Recall that if you're a saint living in those final days, you'll see earthquakes in various places, great signs from heaven, famines, pestilences, and fearful sights, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing, and powers of heaven shaken. When believers see these things happening, they must know that God's kingdom's near. But Jesus doesn't want us to merely know this truth. He wants us to know it with firm conviction. That's why he says, Assuredly, I say to you, in verse 32, our Lord's saying, look at the one who's telling you these things. And then he follows that up with an emphatic expression, will by no means pass away. What will by no means pass away? Two answers in verses 32 and 33. First, we're talking about this generation. Now, what is this generation? Or who are we talking about my generation? The commentators discuss at least three options. It could generally refer to the descendants of a common ancestor, such as the Jews. It could mean the people who lived during Jesus' first advent. Or Jesus is talking about the people who are on earth when the end-time events begin. I favor this third view. I think Jesus is speaking of that generation that sees these things happening, those who missed the rapture and are here during the seven-year tribulation. That same generation will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Though many in that generation will be martyred during those days, enough will survive and see the inauguration of Christ's reign. Among the Israelites, there's the remnant according to the election of grace. Among the Gentiles, there will be the sheep of Christ among all the nations gathered before him. For these saints, there's someone better at the doors than beloved family and friends. It's better than our fondest memories, our best summer vacations. Besides this generation in verse 32, in verse 33, there's something else that will by no means pass away. Our Lord promises heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This is remarkable. The first time we hear, surely I say to you from the mouth of Jesus in the New Testament is back in Matthew 5, during the Sermon on the Mount. Go there and look at Verses 17 to 18, or I'll read it for you. So Jesus says there in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Consider that for a moment. Jesus declared then in Matthew 5 how every detail of the Old Testament's permanent and await fulfillment. 
Jesus declares now in Luke 21 how his own words, recorded in the New Testament, will last forever. Christ backed up the authority of the Bible. This is why we do not merely know God's word. We ought to know it with firm conviction. We ought to stand on it and stand by it. Open up those pages of the Bible. Read it daily and regularly. And as we open up our Bibles, we also need to open up our hearts. And that leads to the second directive. Guard your hearts with eager expectation. I asked last time, how can the people living in the end times ignore the cataclysmic signs of the end? Why can't they see that the summer is near? We see one answer, or we saw one answer as we talked about this last week in 2 Thessalonians 2.12. There's that strong delusion sent by God. But that delusion also comes from within. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. In 2 Timothy 3.13, we find evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. God is good, but it's the evil hearts of men that deceive others and deceive themselves. But what is the means by which people are deceived and deceive others? In Luke 21, 34, Jesus exposes the means by which that self-deception takes effect. He lists carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And these dangers are not only in the future, they're here with us today. And when you line up carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, I tend to see a progression. Picture with me a tree. It's as if we move from the fruit to the trunk to the root. The word carousing only occurs here, only once in the New Testament. Based on extra-biblical sources, we see it it can mean both the act of intoxication and the results of that intoxication, such as staggering, hangover, headache. But that's merely the fruit hanging from the branch, connected to carousing, is drunkenness. But even then, we haven't gone far enough. At the root of carousing and drunkenness are the cares of this life. What are these cares? Earlier, Jesus spoke of them in the parable of the sower. These cares, the cares of this life, are like thorns that grow among the planted seeds. While there's some initial growth of the seeds, eventually the thorns hinder it. Likewise, these cares, along with the riches and pleasures of life, choke the spiritual energy out of us. Because of these thorny hindrances, those who hear God's word bring no fruit to maturity. Are the cares of this life hindering your growth so that you're lacking fruit? You might think you're a good person because you didn't get drunk last night. You didn't wake up with a hangover this morning. Maybe you've been a teetotaler all your life. You never once touched the bottle. Or once you did stop, you never looked back. But as long as we're battling our sin nature on this side of eternity, even if we are saved, we're going to struggle 
with the cares of this life, the stress of work, the pressure to provide, the cutthroat competition of this world, it can wear you down. They can weigh heavy on your hearts. It's interesting where you else you find uh, that word weigh down in the Gospels. It's used to describe the eyes of the disciples as they fall asleep at the pivotal moments of Christ's ministry. Their eyelids are growing heavy at the transfiguration of Jesus. You'll see that they can't stay awake at the Garden of Gethsemane as our Lord is praying. In a similar way, disciples today need to wake up spiritually. We must avoid vices that induce us to sleep. Let me read you three passages for further reflection this week, and I hope they motivate you to guard your hearts with eager expectation. The first, Romans 13, 11 to 14. So either follow along or mark it and hope you meditate on it. Read on these, uh, these words. So Romans 13, 11 to 14 says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Secondly, there's a similar message in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 8. Concerning the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Third, there's 1 Peter 4, 1-3. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So all these passages teach us to guard our hearts with eager expectation. Through them, we learn how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. But what about those who do not guard their hearts? Well, they're like those described in Jeremiah 6, 16 to 21. They refuse the good way. They do not listen to the watchmen who warn them of the advancing judgment. So they trip over the stumbling block and they perish. As Christ says, that day will come upon them unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So guard your hearts with eager expectation. 
Now, the Bible teaches us that the Christian life's not only don't do this, don't do that. It's also about do this, do that. In today's passage, we observe what we must do in the waiting place. We not only avoid the cares of this life that weigh heavy on our hearts, we also cast all our cares upon the Lord, for he cares for us. It's true that we must not run with the world in the flood of dissipation, but it's also true that we must run to the name of the Lord, the safety of that strong tower. This is where prayer is indispensable. That leads us to the third directive, watch and pray in humble dedication. The adverb, therefore, connects verse 36 to what comes before it. When you see therefore, you will ask, what is therefore? Therefore. The answer is that because there are real dangers in this world, because there's carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, because many on earth will face the day of the Lord unexpectedly as a snare, we conclude, or Jesus concludes, that we must watch and pray. And this is applicable in every season. This is where dedication must characterize our prayer. If you pray genuinely to God, you will pray continually to God. If you pray, if you pray the right way, you will pray always. Now we also need humility. Jesus spells out the intended purpose for watching and praying that you may be counted worthy. Worthy of what? Two things. Worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Note how we're not requesting something insignificant here. This is not a small ask. We're praying that we'd escape the fires of hell. We're also praying that we stand before God's Son. Now, such prayer a defining characteristic of God's children. Now, this is so important. How do I know I'm praying correctly and biblically? Satan would love it if you misunderstand prayer and what it's all about. Prayer is not some magic formula, an open sesame to get us earthly treasures. And prayer itself does not save you when you call 911. The phone or the number does not save you, get you out of danger. It's the policeman or the firefighter. In the same way, prayer is a means to communicate with God who saves us. On this important topic, let me tell you about two prayers that you must absolutely pray. The first one is the prayer of justification. I'm talking to the non-Christian or anyone who's listening to this recording later. And the question is, have you ever asked God to save you from hell? This is the first prayer you must pray, the prayer of justification. Earlier in chapter 18, 9 to 14, Jesus spoke of a parable. He spoke to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went to the temple, one a religious man called a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, typically seen as unworthy of heaven. 
The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now what about the tax collector? He felt so unworthy that he did not even draw near or look up. He beat his chest and begged, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Both went back to their respective homes that day, but only one's going to heaven. Only one was justified, the tax collector. He humbled himself while the Pharisee exalted himself. The prayer that makes you worthy is a prayer that says, I'm not worthy. My good works won't save me. It doesn't matter if you're better than others. Your financial giving won't buy you a ticket into heaven. You must realize that you are morally bankrupt. The Bible says if we break just one of God's laws, we are guilty of breaking them all. If you don't believe me, check out James 2.10. God demands perfection, and we are far from perfect. That's why we must pray for forgiveness just as the tax collector did. Receive grace as a gift and be justified. The price for this was paid when Christ, fully man and fully God, unblemished and holy, died in our place. Jesus stood condemned before earthly judges so that we may stand innocent before the judge of all the earth. He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. He'll return someday, inaugurate the kingdom of God. Before it's too late, repent and trust in Christ. Turn away from your sins, carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. Turn to Jesus by faith. Ask him to forgive you of your wrongdoing so that you may be declared innocent before God. Confess that you can do nothing on your own strength. Nothing to be counted worthy of heaven. Don't wait too long to make this decision. There's that warning from that hymn we sang earlier, the love of God. Don't be among those who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. That image is from Revelation 6, of people who stubbornly refuse to pray to God. Open your eyes of faith by closing your eyes in prayer. Now, besides the prayer of justification, there's another prayer we must pray as we wait for Christ's return. I call it the prayer of sanctification. We pray for justification once. We pray for sanctification repeatedly. Paul's a good model of this. And during our Wednesday night prayer meetings, we've been looking over his prayers from his letters. No doubt Paul's someone who watches and prays in humble dedication. He often prays for the spiritual well-being of himself and others. And I don't have time to go through all of them, but here are some reoccurring themes. He's not only happy to see faith in others, he's praying that such faith would grow. He's not only glad that God counts saints worthy of his kingdom and they live forever, he wants the Lord to make them worthy of this calling, which means 
live for his glory now. We should be praying in the same manner until Christ returns or calls us home. Such is the prayer of sanctification. God uses this ordinary means of grace to accomplish extraordinary goals. Empowered through such prayers, we can be like Paul in Philippians 3.14, press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God listens to our prayers so that we are conformed to the image of his Son. Now that image is not vague or abstract. We have in the Gospels a clear picture of the one we should resemble. That leads us to the final directive, follow Christ in active devotion. I won't be long on this point. In verses 37 and 38, we have three quick scenes that correspond to our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus. First, we see the boldness of Christ in the daytime. He did not shrink from his mission, though he knew it lead to deadly suffering and pain. That's why in John 18.20, our Lord can testify before his enemies that he spoke openly to the world. He said nothing in secret. Next, we see Jesus in the nighttime on the Mount of Olives. We're not told exactly what he did there, but most likely he prayed. We have precedence in chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 28. And we'll see soon in the next chapter that our Lord ascended mountains for prayer. As our master directed us to take heed, watch, and pray, he did not ask us to do something he did not do himself. He modeled a lifestyle of prayer that we should seek for ourselves. Finally, we shift the focus in verse 38. At dawn, at sunrise, there's the third scene of crowds gathering at the temple to listen to Jesus. As soon as there's light, they immediately look for the light of Christ. Now, whether they'll be the doers of the word they hear, only time will tell, and we go on and already know how many how that many people will reject him. That's why Peter can say literally to those who revisit Jerusalem at the Pentecost, you crucified Jesus. But many did repent of this folly. In fact, thousands of them. They eventually denied themselves, took up the cross daily, and followed Christ. So the words of Jesus did work effectively among those who believed. They would endure persecution faithfully as they waited for Christ. Now how about us? Will we be doers of Christ's words in the waiting place? If the answer is yes, I hope this final song expresses your purpose for living. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guided. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. As we live in confusing times, at times we don't know what to do. We thank you that we can turn to your word. And it's clear to us what the responsibilities are as we wait for you. Give us the resolve, the heart to obey your words this week. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.